Y'all, there's a, an old story that preachers love to tell. It's about a young child sitting at the dinner table with his parents, and the boy just can't sit still. In fact, he's standing up in his chair, and for the life of his parents, they can't do anything about it. They keep telling him, sit down, sit down, eat your food, sit down and eat. But the more they appeal to their son, the sillier and more defiant he gets. He's twirling around and dancing. He's standing up in his chair until finally his dad gets up, takes his son, sits him down, and says, you stay there. Well, the kid didn't like that at all. But he sits down with his arms folded. He scowls at his parents. And he says, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Now, some of us as parents, we can relate to this story. All of us now, I know all of us can relate to this little child because we realize, I hope, that we have all kinds of authority figures in our lives, people that we are expected to submit to and obey, whether that's a parent or a teacher or a coach or a boss or a board, local law enforcement, the IRS, the Homeowners Association, your commanding officer, your elders, all of us, whether it's at school or at work, all of us had a, have a code of conduct that we're expected to submit to and comply with. There's all kinds of authority in your life and in mine. And I'm going to make an assumption here. I'm going to err in our favor this morning. I'm going to assume that we're all fairly obedient, compliant people when it comes to the authorities in our lives. Y'all don't tell me any different, okay? But I'm assuming that we do a pretty good job, at least in terms of external obedience. But my question for you and for me is, what's going on inside? I mean, think about the story of this little kid. What was his motivation in obeying his parents? What's yours when you submit to the authorities in your life? Y'all, we have a lot of times motivation that drives this that's not necessarily good or pure. I mean, sometimes, if, if we're honest, we obey simply out of fear. We're either afraid of failure or afraid of punishment, and that's what motivates us. Sometimes we submit to others purely out of self-interest. I know that if I'm good and obedient, that there will be a reward in it for me. I can get in with the right kinds of people. There's a way to, to advance myself with a certain kind of behavior. Sometimes we comply because it just helps us to fit in and belong with the crowd. That's why we do it. Sometimes we obey for the sake of our own self-esteem. You know, it feels good to be a nice and good person. It makes me feel good about myself when I do good things, when I submit to authority. And then sometimes we submit like the little kid at the dinner table. We do it out of compulsion. We do it because we have to, not because we want to. I may externally look like I'm doing the right thing, but internally, arr, I'm standing up. Internally, I do not feel like it, and I'm resentful. I'm rebellious on the inside, even if outside I'm looking the part. Y'all, I've been guilty of all these motivations, sometimes more than once, more than one at the same time. But then I tell myself, Kyle, it doesn't really matter why you do something. All that matters is that you do it, right? Obey, submit, comply, keep the rules, just do the right thing. Who cares what my attitude or my internal motivation is? Nobody has to know that. All that matters is that I get it done. Right? We always, we spend this summer talking about discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It was only a matter of time before we zeroed in on this issue right here, the issue, the topic of obedience. Because you can't even have the conversation about following Jesus without seeing His clear and resounding call 
to obey Him. But then equally clear, if we're familiar with what the Bible teaches, we know also that obedience for God is always a matter of the heart. It's not merely externals. In fact, God is is upset with His people when they only obey Him externally. He wants the heart to be present. Or in in the case of Jesus, he, He uses phrases like this. He says, it's the good tree that produces good fruit. The inside is what makes the outside count. And so when it comes to obeying Christ, it's not only the what of obedience, it's also the why. And those two things are meant to be married together. You can't have one without the other. The what and the why both matter to God. The outside as well as the inside, and especially the inside, because it's the controlling influence. And so, y'all, what I want us to do today is to look at what I think is one of the most important scriptures on obedience in all the Bible, where Jesus from his own mouth is going to tell us not only what obedience is, very simply, but Jesus is also going to show us what a life of obedience looks like, what it results in, the outcome. Here in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to draw some very clear lines for us on this issue. So look with me. We're toward the end of the chapter here, Luke 6, beginning in verse 46. As Jesus speaks to us, he begins with a question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground or the sand without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. That first verse we read, verse 46, it's such a simple but a very piercing question, isn't it? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? For a person to call Jesus Lord, 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 with that kind of repetition, it's both an acknowledgement of Jesus' authority and it's also an acknowledgement of a person's allegiance to him. It's both authority and allegiance. But we see that back in the time of Jesus, just as it is now, there are people who give lip service to Christ without actually giving him their allegiance. They do not do what he says. And so verse 46, all by itself, draws an essential line for us. Jesus is saying this, I think, very loudly and clearly for us. Only those who obey Him will know Him as Lord. Talk is cheap. It doesn't, in the end, matter what we say. If we call Jesus Lord, fine, great. But only in our obedience is He shown to be our Lord. Uh, The proof is in the pudding. Side note, it's not pudding with two D's. It's not like the pudding that you eat. It's two T's, pudding. The proof is in the doing. I always thought it was pudding. And I was wondering what, the, what, what was in the pudding. Now, now we know, okay. The proof is in the pudding, P-U-T-T-I-N-G. 
Don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Some of y'all didn't know that. You know that now. You learned something at church today. All right, back on track here. Let's, now, let's, I want to take the two ideas I just mentioned. I want to show, I hope, what, what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. The two words I use, both A words, authority and allegiance. Jesus is questioning uh, our, our response here to his authority and now our allegiance. So let's take those two in turn. When we speak of Jesus' authority, we're in unique territory already. Because Jesus is the authority over all things. He is God. He has no rivals. Jesus has no one above him that he must answer to. And so this question of Christ's authority is not up for debate or decision. We don't get to vote. We simply recognize reality. Jesus is Lord. Whether we like it or not, He is Lord. Now, modern people like us, we tend to not like definitive statements like this. We don't like absolute authority. Most of us, we're, we're kind of trained to question authority, right? But again, we have to recognize the uniqueness of Jesus because what, what we say that Jesus has authority, we're not talking about just some figurehead who exists. We're talking about a certain kind of person. We're talking about the Son of God. And so it's not that Jesus is just great in terms of His authority. He's great in His character. Jesus is eternally wise and He is entirely good. And He created us to bear His divine image and reflect His divine glory. And so when we speak of Jesus as our authority, we're speaking of a person who when He gives us a command, He's actually giving us what is for our eternal good because He is good. He's giving us the utmost in wisdom and righteousness to guide us because that's who He is. And so all that comes from His mouth is not just authoritative, but He's a good God who calls us to live out His goodness. We're living under His authority because it's what's best for us. So we don't question His goodness here. He is the Son of God who has shown Himself to be good in His manifestation to the world. He came and He lived for us and He died for us. We should never question not only the greatness of His authority and His power, but also the goodness of it. We live under His authority, and that's a good thing. But that leads us now to the second word, which is allegiance. See, allegiance means we don't just acknowledge that He's great and powerful, but we embrace Him from the heart. We embrace Jesus and His Word. We bind ourselves to Him. We devote ourselves to Him as Lord. It's not enough to call Him Lord, but we do what He says, Luke 6. That is allegiance. Now, y'all, at this point, Jesus, because He is the authority, He could have stopped and said, listen, I am God, you do what I say, you belong to me, you owe it to me, the end. And because He has all authority, we'd be smart at least to do it. But Jesus never leaves us there. He never tells us to blindly follow. What He does instead is He gives us a parable. And a very earthy one, too, one that we can all understand because we've all been in human-made structures. We all have homes that we live in. And so Jesus gives us a parable to paint a picture for us of what life is like for the person who lives under him in allegiance and then for the one who doesn't. We see it in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I'll show you whom he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, 
the torrent burst against that house and it could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who is heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground, or in Matthew 7, it's sand, without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. Now, y'all, we know because this is a parable that Jesus is not talking about houses. He's talking about building a life. One person builds his life on obedience to Christ. The other does not. The first man survives the flood. The other, of course, does not. His ruin was great. Now, at face value, we might come to a conclusion here, a very simple one. The more we obey Jesus the stronger we become, and when bad things happen, we can withstand them. Now, there are elements of truth in that. That's not entirely wrong. But it's also, I don't think it's the point of this parable. I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at, that if you'll simply obey Him, then your life will be strong, and when bad times come, you'll be able to stand. That's, there's, there's, that's true. But, but it's deeper than that, and it's, and it's better than that. We only understand this parable when we recognize the one difference Jesus makes between these two people. Notice that Jesus doesn't make any distinction between the two houses. There's only one difference between the two. And what is it? It's the foundation. One person builds his house on the rock. The other builds on sand. The first remains secure and unshaken, while the second is ruined, and the difference between the two is owed entirely to the foundation, or in the other case, the absence of a foundation. And this is where when we read this parable, we have to be very careful here, because what Jesus is saying is not that your obedience is your foundation. He's not saying that you are the rock. He is. And that's what makes all the difference. Jesus is the rock. Uh, Further on down the line in the Scripture, the Apostle Paul gives this same analogy, speaking of building in 1 Corinthians 3, and he says it more explicitly. He says we build on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. And so that's the first point of clarity here for us. We're not talking about the strength that we bring to the equation, but the strength we build on, which is Christ. And y'all, furthermore, this is something I never really saw, but I think it's helpful. When Jesus speaks of a storm that hits these houses with a great torrent and a flood, very likely he's talking about the day of judgment. Not just the temporary hardships of life, but the day in which God will judge the world in righteousness. The day in which God will account for sin. Because see, in that day, there is a person who stands totally secure, unshaken, unharmed, but then another kind of person who's utterly ruined. And if we ask what the difference is, well, one is founded on the person of Jesus, while the other does not know Him. His life is built on sinking sand. That in the day of judgment, what makes us secure? It's not how much obedience you have to your credit. It's only your trust and dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ who saves us 
from judgment. And so, y'all, we, we have to come to this place of understanding lest we, we, we totally get this wrong and focus only on ourselves. Y'all, your obedience is not what saves you. No matter how well-intentioned, no matter how hard you work at it. Jesus alone saves us. And that's why I'm making such a big deal out of this word, allegiance. The point of this parable, I hope we see it, it's not about how great of a builder you are. It's about the strength of your foundation, what you're building on. When a person, this is verse 47, Jesus says, the one who comes to me and hears me and obeys me, what's the common denominator there? It's capital M, lowercase e, Jesus is the common denominator. He is the rock. He is the immovable and eternal foundation upon which we build our lives. And so when we speak of obedience, y'all, it's not simply a matter of opening up the book, reading the words in red, and doing my best to keep them. That's noble. That's wonderful. But that's not enough. Obedience at the end of the day is not simply an expression of moral effort. It's a life built on a person. We trust Him. We obey Him, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what allegiance is. We're not, we don't align ourselves with, with bare commands on a page. We align ourselves with a person. And so y'all, I'm going to boil all this down the best I can for myself. Okay, maybe it helps you too. Obedience to Jesus is an act of faith. It can't be boiled down to moral effort. It's an act of faith. We come to Him. We trust Him. We depend on Him. We build on Him. And in the end, it's not the strength of your obedience that saves you and um, uh, makes you acceptable to God. It's the foundation upon which you are built by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, we could say that there is no real obedience to Jesus apart from faith. There's no real obedience apart from faith. We saw this from John 15 last week when Paul preached Jesus' words to his disciples. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We only bear fruit for God when we as branches are attached to the vine, the vine of Christ. We have to draw our life from him in order to bear any good fruit for him. Obedience is an act of faith of building a life on Christ, not on ourselves or on our good deeds. Now, that I hope is, a, is an encouragement, a relief to us. But let's just get real with each other for a second, y'all. Even as an act of faith, obedience to Jesus is outrageously difficult. And frankly, it's very abrasive. Nobody, I think I mentioned this last week or the week before, nobody takes the commands of Jesus and says one for one, two for two, three for three, as if it's no sweat. Y'all, if you actually read, just read the, the Sermon on the Mount all by itself. We can't do this. We come to the end of ourselves very quickly because what we realize is that Jesus doesn't command us to do all the things we were just doing anyway. Just do them now with the Jesus badge on. No, Jesus is calling us out of our ways of life, our ways of thinking and being. Jesus calls us away from our natural impulses and our desires. Jesus often commands us in ways that conflict with our culture. He tells us we must deny ourselves in order to follow Him, which means, y'all, 
If ever I find that my desires conflict with His commands, what has to go? My desires must be denied. The Bible says they must even be put to death. My desires must die so that I might live to Christ. There is no easy way to obey Him. If that, does, if that sounds hard, it's because it is. Now, when we face facts in this way, it, it, it brings us, perhaps some of us at least, to a point of repentance. And y'all, I want to just continue to, to, you know, for me, this is somewhat at least looking in the mirror. Maybe this will resonate with you. Let me paint this scenario here. If I ever come to a command of Jesus that crosses my desires, my lifestyle, my politics, our culture, and I choose to ignore or dismiss Jesus in favor of the other, where does my allegiance lie? Now, I, I want to follow Jesus. I, you know, I'm not against Jesus. I love Jesus. But only to a certain point will I obey Him. I will not obey Him if He threatens something that's more precious to me. And y'all, in that case, I am building my life on some other foundation besides Him. He is not the authority in my life. I am. And I have to come back. You ought, we ought to come back in that case to verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? His Lordship has no boundaries where I'll obey Him only to a certain point. He's either Lord or He isn't. Now, for most of us, though, I want to speak a word of encouragement. Because, y'all, I just, again, I'm, I'm going to give us as much credit as I can here, me included. I really think, most of us, we at least want to obey Jesus all the way. I don't want to create boundaries that He's not allowed to touch. I want to obey Him. I want to belong to Him. And yet, all of us, I know this to be true, all of us, we run up against the reality of sin and temptation and our culture and so on, and we always end up feeling guilty for something. There's this undercurrent of guilt and shame and failure that most of us live with, always starting over, always trying again to do our best and feeling like we're not making any progress at all when it comes to obedience. Maybe I started doing one thing well, but then I turned the page and I find something that I just can't do or that I've never done before. And it maybe for you, never feels like you're getting anywhere. You're always feeling like you're falling short. We join the club here. But in that case, y'all, I want to I refresh us in the why of obedience. Remember, I talked about the what and the why. The what is obedience is an act of faith. We're building our lives on Christ as we obey His Word. But it's the motivation of the heart that God zeroes in on so consistently throughout the Scripture, if we ask the question, what is, what, is, what is my design as to what should be the greatest and deepest motivation of my heart when it comes to obeying Christ? What is it? It almost seems too simple. It's love. Jesus said it. On multiple occasions, Jesus said this, especially in John 14. He says it multiple times. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A few verses down, he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now, I said it almost seems too simple. If you love me, you will obey me. We say, yes, of course. 
But I want, you to, I want us to think about what I made mention of at the beginning of this message concerning what motivates our obedience. Whether it's in human relationships, school, work, family, but especially as it pertains to our relationship to God, what typically motivates compliance, submission, obedience? Think about this. So often we obey out of fear or a deep sense of guilt or out of compulsion or for the sake of reward. Many of us, we just, this is how we learn to relate to our parents growing up. We obey because either there's something in it for me or there's fear of being punished if I don't or I have to whether I like it or not. And we carried that over into our relationship with the Lord. That we do our best, y'all, to keep the law, to keep the rules out of a sense of fear for what might happen if I don't or guilt because of all my past failures or compulsion, I just have to whether I like it or not. Or maybe I'm after some kind of reward and I think maybe if I just obey God then I'll finally have the life I always wanted. My guess is, I can look into my own heart here, most of my motivating factors fall under that category somewhere. Most of the reason I do what I do falls somewhere in fear, guilt, compulsion, reward. And y'all, the truth is, those are good motivators in terms of getting us moving. Fear, guilt, compulsion, reward, those things will get you to act, but in the end they fall short of what is true and sincere obedience, the kind of obedience that God delights in. Because at the end of the day, only love can do that. Y'all dig deep with me here for a second. Look into your own heart, because only you can know this about yourself. If, if you are motivated, let's, let's just whittle this down only to your relationship to the Lord. If you are motivated to obey God, to obey Christ, ultimately out of some combination of fear or guilt or compulsion or reward, at the end of the day, those motivations are all self-serving. I'm either protecting myself, preserving myself, or seeking something for me. Whereas love, as the Bible defines it, love is self-giving. Love is self-sacrificing, self-denying, to use the words of Jesus. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you've heard this at weddings. Love does not seek its own, but love delights in the good of its object, the object of our love, the other person, in this case, Jesus. Y'all, this is why Jesus, when He speaks of love and obedience, He speaks in the same breath, one to the other. They belong together because for God, this is a matter of the heart. He doesn't just want the outcome. He doesn't just want the externals. He wants you. He values your heart above all else. And so true, sincere, lasting, enduring obedience has to be motivated by a love for God. Every other motivation will get us moving, but it will only take us so far. Only love brings us into the heart of God. Because that's who he is to us. Y'all, uh, St. Augustine lived like 1,700 years ago. This is old, but very true. St. Augustine spoke of sin. He called it disordered love. Sin, Augustine said, is love uh, that, uh, that is loved in the wrong way. We treasure something in a way that is idolatrous or perverse. We love something wrongly, and that's why we sin. That was his perspective. And he said, until Christ becomes your highest love, over and above all the rest, you're always going to live in disorder. You're always going to be seeking other things 
that never fit. And I want to encourage us in this, y'all. When Jesus becomes your highest love, you will obey Him because you want to. Not because you're afraid of what might happen if you don't. Not because you have to, because He's God and you're you. Not because you might get some blessing on the back end, even. But because you simply love Him for who He is. You want to obey Him. You belong to Him. You build your life on Him. Even the most radical commands, the ones that are so abrasive and difficult for us, we at least want to keep them from the heart because we want nothing more than to know and please our Savior. He is Lord. And He's made Himself to belong to us. He's loved us. We love Him. And so the motivation should never be in question, even if we struggle with the execution. So as we close, I want to encourage us in this, y'all. Oh my goodness. When we speak of obedience, no matter how, we, no matter how right we get it in terms of motivation and, and definition, it's always going to be a challenge, Right? There's a battle between the flesh and the spirit so that we don't do the things we please. Galatians teaches us that. And so the only way we actually cross over the line from our old selfish motivations to that which is true and good and right and loving, we have to recognize that we don't produce this. We didn't start this. This comes from God. When we speak of obedience, we're talking a lot about ourselves, but I want to bring us back to center here and something I mentioned earlier. Our obedience is not what saves us. The strength of your love for God, even, is not what saves you. Our obedience, our allegiance to God, is a response to a prior love that God has had for us. The last scripture I want us to see, 1 John chapter 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Listen to this order here. In this is love, John says, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means an atoning sacrifice for sin that fully satisfies the righteousness of God. An atoning sacrifice for sin that fully satisfies the righteousness of God. Something only Jesus could do Because Jesus alone is perfect in righteousness and able to stand in our place. Y'all, that's why we say that even our best attempts at obedience could never save us. But they don't have to. We are saved by His obedience on our behalf. His righteousness. His perfect life lived for us, and the perfect sacrifice made for us so that our sins might be forgiven when Jesus gave Himself on the cross. His obedience unto death is what saves you, not yours. It's why we also say that it's not the strength of our love for God that saves us. The love that motivates obedience? Great. But even that love can't save us because before we ever dreamed of loving God, He first loved us and He demonstrated His love by sending His Son for us. And so if we ask this question, And only you can ask it and answer it. What motivates me to live under His Lordship, to build my life on Him, and to obey Him from the heart? What's my motivation? 
What drives me? The answer can only be this, that we have taken to heart the greatness of His prior love for us and His grace freely given to us. What motivated Jesus to go to the cross for you? It was love for you. And now it is love for Him that makes us His obedient disciples. Y'all, we all humor me a poem here. It's an old one too, about 300 years old. So let's work hard with the language together. But this is too good not to share. William Cowper wrote these words. I'd love to share them before we pray. He says, No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now I feel its power within. I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done. A righteousness to raise now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. What shall I do was then the word that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear His pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. We will not obey Him without a prior love to save us and make it possible. And we will only obey Him to the degree that we see His great love and respond in kind. May we love Him with all our hearts and so live as His disciples. Let's pray. Father, I, I hope and ask, Lord, this morning for all of us, Lord, that we're able to see clearly here. Father, understanding what obedience is and recon reconciling this, Lord, with our own hearts, Lord, that it's, it's not my obedience that saves me. It never was. It never could be. And Father, I hope we see this also. It's not our obedience that keeps us saved and makes us strong, but only the foundation which is Jesus Christ. Everything we are is built on Him. And Father, I pray also that we would recognize, Lord, in ourselves maybe a, a substandard motivation. That there's something else, Lord, driving us that is not Your ultimate aim. You've called us to love the Son, Jesus Christ. To love Him and therefore keep His commandments. To delight in Him. And therefore we want to do what He says, Lord. Even and especially when it's very difficult. Because we have seen His love for us. 
We have known the extent, Lord, in which your love has been poured out. And so let us love you in return. Father, this is deep water we are in as we, as we consider what drives us, what's deep in our hearts. And so, Father, I pray, that, I pray against this morning, I pray against um, self-abasement. Lord, I, I pray we don't just beat ourselves up over and again for our failures, but that we come in a fresh way, a new way, to the Savior, Jesus. And Lord, we would just ask You this morning that You would help plant in our hearts the right motivation, what is good and true, so that we might obey You, Lord, for the right reasons. And that we might receive, Lord, the good fruit in our lives that simply comes from loving You and giving ourselves for You. Father, where, where we have failed, and we have. Lord, I pray that, that we would see the Gospel of grace very brightly this morning. Jesus, who never says, away from me each and every day because we've failed, but He brings us near. Come to me. We are saved. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are renewed. Lord, let that be our posture this morning so that we might obey You from the heart, knowing, Lord, that we are not the foundation, but we are built firmly on Christ. He is everything. And by Him, Lord, we are Yours. Make us, Father, not obedient slaves working by compulsion, but obedient children who love the Father's heart. And having received your love, Father, we say thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen.